Well, I'll stop whining then. I'm going to go ahead and get us started, everybody. Good morning. My name is Matt Cook, and I'm the Assistant Director of the Center for Healthy Churches. I'd like to welcome you to the Changing Church webinar. One of the things that we do, the, the, the organizations that kind of partner together to make this webinar reality, is we, we have been asking the question, what does each partner bring to the table? What's a, what's a particular strength that each partner brings to the table? Um, two series ago, the, the Lake Institute for Faith and Giving got out in front, and we talked a lot about cultivating generosity. The series after that, New Matrix, um, got out in front. Uh, they, work, they talk a lot about collaboration out on the West Coast. That's, that's the way Christians work together out on the West Coast, which is a good thing that has something to teach all of us. We are very grateful to have Truett Seminary as a partner in this process. It won't shock or surprise anybody to hear that one of the things that Truett Seminary is very good at is, in fact, it's the center of their mission, is raising up a new generation of ministers, um, giving them the training that they need um, to help congregations live out their vision and their mission. So for the next few weeks, that's where our focus is going to be, talking about the question of how do we train, equip, um, do all the things that we need to do to be able to make certain that ministers have what they need so that churches have what they need. Um, Matt Homeyer, um, um, assistant dean there, is going to talk in a, a little bit and flesh that out for us. But before I turn the, the uh, hosting responsibilities over to him, I wanted to thank all of the other partners that are a part of this particular webinar and help make it a reality. Obviously, grateful for Truth Seminary and their taking leadership. Grateful for New Matrix. Um, Jim Kitchens is one of our panelists this morning. Grateful for the Presbyterian Foundation, for the Lake Institute for Faith and Giving, for the Charlie Curb Center for Faith Leadership at Belmont University, for Gardner Webb and the Gardner Webb Divinity School, for Baptist News Global, and for the Church Network. Um, Church Network does all of the video hosting for this, and so all of the past webinars. We'll probably drop a link in for you in a little bit. If you want to go back and look at the topics that we've covered in the past, their CEO, Phil Martin, is on with us this morning. So grateful to all of them. With that little bit of introduction, Matt Homeyer, let me turn it over to you. Thank you, Matt Cook. As we talked, getting on, a lot of, a lot of Matt's here today. It'll get a little confusing, but uh, thankful for this partnership um, at Truett Seminary. Um, thankful to be a part of this today and to be here with you. Um, over the next few weeks, we'll be talking about several issues related to uh, a new generation of ministers, which, as we may mention today, certainly in other weeks, does not necessarily mean a young generation of ministers, but it, it can um, and certainly does in part. Uh, today, we're focusing on kind of calling and training. Um, how, how, how is this new generation being called? How are they being trained? What are some of the challenges that come with that? And so we have uh, three panelists involved deeply in that and their life's work and calling. Uh, Dr. Mandy McMichael is Assistant Director for uh, Ministry Guidance at Baylor University, um, teaches in the Ministry Guidance Program and in uh, uh, History of American Christianity um, at Baylor, and we're thankful she's with us today. Dr. Dennis Tucker um, is uh, just moved out of the Associate Academic Dean role at Truett Seminary that he's held for several years, but a professor of Old Testament at Truett Seminary. Um, having had Dennis as a teacher, as a professor, and then now as a colleague and friend, uh, there's no better advocate for young ministers, um, mentor and guide for young ministers who has his, uh, his kind of finger on the pulse of the heartbeat there, and we can learn much from him. And Jim Kitchens needs no introduction in this particular Zoom room um, as the founder of New Matrix and participating today. 
Um, we appreciate Jim um, being with us as well and joining in this discussion. Um, so uh, I think we'll answer kind of Mandy, Dennis, Jim, largely because that's the order I see them in my screen. I don't know about your screen. Um, and to go through a few questions and just allow each of you to respond to those. And then we may have more of a free-flowing conversation after that. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, from pastors and churches, maybe some anxiety, maybe some questions, sometimes some frustration. This is probably all generations have this with the new generation of ministers that we're learning, but particularly right now, what we're talking about. Um, sometimes right now, you know, there seems to be uh, less when we look at seminaries and uh, ministry programs and universities, they're obvious, often less than there were a generation ago. Um, there's other challenges there. What are some of the challenges your institution is facing perhaps, or your group is facing in raising up and training a new generation of ministers, or maybe just challenges you're seeing in general? Um, Dr. M. Michael, would you, would you start us off? Sure. As, as you stated, um, this is where I was going to start too. I think this is not a new fear. Uh, the church has often looked at a new generation and seen the challenges and wondered from where the next generation of leaders would rise. But I do think that there are some hurdles to pursuing ministry that are a bit higher than they once were. And I'll just name two of them. So first, our commitment to old models of leadership and the gatekeeping that surrounds those, those models are one of the challenges to calling and training the next generation. This generation did not live through the Baptist battles. They don't remember 9-11. And so they don't bear the same battle scars that we do. And I think that far too often we want to hand those scars over to them and hand them down to them rather than allowing them to minister in the freedom of not bearing those particular wounds. So my students want to do meaningful work that changes the world and the church would seem to be a perfect fit. And yet we do not always demonstrate that the church can be a change agent. Far more often we present the church as an institution that is looking back and reliving things from the past rather than moving forward. So we present the church as one that is entrenched in very local, mostly white disagreements, rather than as um, something that has a vision for partnering with the global church. So that is one challenge, I think, that we need to shift these models and that particular thinking. The second, and this goes hand in hand with the first, is that ministers are losing influence as authority figures in the world. This has been a trend for a very long time, and it's only continuing. So even some of us who are in the work of the church praise the work of doctors and teachers and lawyers as worthy callings far more than we do the work of ministry. Yes, ministry is hard, and yes, it is a calling, but callings should be nurtured and explored. Ministry should not be seen as a last resort if you can't figure out anything else to do. Um, rather, uh, we as pastors, educators, and lay people do not always do a good job of encouraging our most gifted and talented to pursue ministry. Rather, we push them towards more respectable fields when the, where their intellects will be respected and appreciated, but the church needs them. The church needs their creative minds. The church needs their new ways of thinking, their people, people skills, just as much, if not more, more than accounting firms and hospitals. So I think that burden lies on us to show our, to, for me, to show my students that ministry is 
a worthy calling where they can go and make a difference. So I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Well, thanks, Mandy. Um, yeah, I'll mention just a couple of things uh, based on my encounter primarily with uh, undergraduates. Our entering classes at Truett, uh, usually it's about 22.7 or so. I mean, so mostly right out of college is where we get students. Um, and, and so for me, I, I think this language of calling and training, I think one of the challenges is really semantics almost um, for us. Uh, I think sometimes the language of calling and training has the potential to, uh, to shut people down, particularly undergraduates. That's been my experience. Uh, even when I talk about what do you feel called to do? Uh, it, it tends to be a paralyzing question more than an open-ended question. And, and I thought a lot about why that is, because when I went into ministry, that was, that was a liberating question for someone to ask me that. Um, and I think maybe, or I wonder if perhaps it's because those terms create something of a linear narrative in their minds that one necessarily leads to the other. If I say I'm called to something or I'm getting training to do something, uh, there seems to be an unbroken thread in their mind between what I've just said and what I have to become. Uh, and so when I meet with undergraduates in particular, but others as well, I've really stopped using the words, uh, talking about coming to seminary out of a sense of calling or a need for training. Um, uh, I've started talking about seminary as a season of discernment and exploration, um, that, that if what they sense is a nudging of the spirit in some way to align their lives with the work of God in the world, then what seminary provides is not a space to come get a degree. It's not a space that one comes to get training to do something. Uh, it's really this wonderful opportunity for a season of discernment and to explore and to realize all that God's doing in the world. Um, and for, I keep telling them the end is always open. There, there, it's, uh, it's not a linear narrative. It's, I, I use geometry. It's, it's more like a ray. I mean, the, the arrow starts. We don't know where it's going to go, but it's going somewhere, and God's going with you there. Um, I also think this may be a helpful model for the duration of their ministry as well. Um, the rather than seeing our ministry as somewhat narrowly defined on a linear narrative, that if I start here and I say I'm called to pastoral ministry, for example, if somehow I deviate off of that, that somehow that's uh, not being faithful. Or I, I live, I know friends who live with guilt because they've moved to other positions of, of ministry, true ministry. And so I think maybe talking about, uh, talking about seasons of discernment and exploration from the very beginning it might liberate our students as they move through ministry and explore and discern where God is taking them uh, and further down the road in the next adventure. So that's one of the things we're doing here is trying to use the language, um, not because calling is antiquated, but because in some ways I don't think it's as helpful for helping students understand how they're feeling this nudge by the spirit to, to take another step towards God and the work that he's calling them. I know to follow up that briefly, um, uh, my first several years here ran the, the placement office at Truett Seminary and still oversee that. Uh, Jack Bodenhammer will be on a guest next week who runs that office for us now. But when we've got seminarians in the office and now even more ministers, a lot uh, in coaching calls with pastors right now who are considering what is my calling and, and can I stay in this? It's so hard right now. We, we've 
uh, really, this is from a book called Calling and Clarity by Doug Casquella at Seattle Pacific, where he talks about kind of more of a, a multifaceted view of calling, that there's general calling, um, which is for every Christian, you know, kind of pick your text there of following Jesus. He would say like a missional calling, which is there are things you are good at, gifted at, there's things you have joy in, there's things you're drawn to naturally. And, and that is, uh, it may not be a word from God that delivers that from on high to you, but, but you find yourself being hospitable. You find yourself teaching. You find yourself leading. Um, we could define those things. And he would say, I would say, um, I think this is true of my life. Um, my call to pastor has always been missionally driven, which I'm not crazy about that language sometimes, but you just find yourself doing these things and kind of a, a labels attached to it. And then he said, occasionally in the Bible, occasionally in life, you have these direct callings, these Paul the Damascus Road experiences. And he said, you know, those can't be avoided. He said, they're going to come or they're not going to come. Um, you can't control it. He said, and if it comes, you can't really avoid it. You can say no, but you can't avoid it. And his advice at the end of the book is basically, don't worry so much about the direct calling. It's going to come or not. What's right in front of you? What, what do you have joy doing? What are the needs around you? Get busy doing it, and you may just find a life um, of ministry. And anyway, that's been helpful for me. I think it's been helpful for some where we don't have to put the Saul on the Damascus Road expectation on everybody when we talk of calling. It's a much more pliable thing than that. So anyway, I, I appreciate that, Dennis. Wanted to follow that up. Well, let me kind of jump in from a, a different location. And I'm not on this call today because of my role with New Matrix. I'm on it because I'm in my fifth of six years as chair of our Presbytery's Committee on Preparation for Ministry, which is that committee in the Presbyterian system, which starts with someone who says, I think maybe I might be called to ministry and leads them all the way through that process of then going to seminary and finding that first call. Um, and the main thing that, that we've been wrestling with as a committee is that sort of standard model of you sense a call, um, you come right out of, out of college, or maybe after a little bit of time out in the work world and deciding, no, I'm really called to something like ministry. And you go to seminary and you finish in three or four, maybe or five or six, um, three or four years, and there's a call waiting for you. You, you just need to decide which one you're called to. In my six years and about 30 people we've led through that process, we've had two people who fit that sort of standard older model. We get people who um, we have had a, a candidate who did some work at the Near Eastern School of Theology and then did a Master of Arts at Princeton and still didn't know how to be a Presbyterian and came to us say, what do I need to do to figure out this whole Presbyterian ethos and polity? Um, we've had people who um, were ordained in another uh, tradition, but they are in a community that has a Presbyterian church that's looking for a pastor and it's an isolated community. So we're gonna enable that person to be able to lead that community. Um, so I think for, part of the challenge is the whole model of what it looks like uh, to prepare for ministry has shifted. And, and, and Matt, I think you're, um, you're saying it's, it's really an ongoing season of discernment. And I think for most of us, I'm, I'm now in my 43rd year of ministry. 
I'm still discerning kind of what God is calling me to do. And I think I have a couple other iterations left before I finally hang up my hat. Um, but it is, it's, it's engaging people. And we need to encourage this more and more at the congregational level. That's where that encouragement that, um, I mean, I was of an era where there was a clergy oversupply in the Presbyterian church, where my pastor said to me, Jim, is there anything else you can do with those gifts and that sense of passion than ministry? Um, I think we need to be taking the exact opposite uh, uh, approach is to say for, for bright, for faithful, for people that we sort of see um, gifts that would be useful in ministry to, to sit down and just say with them one-on-one, -on -one, have you ever considered that God might desire you to serve the church in some way? And that would be a wonderful thing for you to do with your life. So it sort of turns the model on its head a little bit. Uh, the final thing I would have to say is, um, con as in everything, context is everything. Um, out here on the West Coast, far West Coast, the left coast, um, we have a lot of people who are going to seminary to decide whether they believe in Jesus or not. They enter the conversation way back, um, kind of earlier in the process of discernment than most folks. Um, that piece and the other piece is that about 52% of our congregations are 100 or less. And so the whole issue of part-time churches having a part-time pastor and pastors having a less than full-time call are huge issues um, for church judicatories to wrestle with out here. Thanks, Jim. I think that's very true. Many of those things are very true right where we are in Waco at Baylor and Truett and, and in our world and most of the worlds, um, I would say it's much higher than 52% would be hundred and under a hundred member congregations in our world. We're increasingly preparing people for a smaller number of churches, though that's where the majority of the church attenders are, are in those bigger churches. Um, but it gets complicated. Even Truett is a, a largely residential, though we, we offer some online courses we have a couple extensions, but we're largely a residential um, seminary. But even here, our, over the past four years, um, we've seen our average age go up four years from 26 to 30 of our students. Um, so people coming in mid-career and, and uh, we've seen our number of female students tick up about seven to eight percent in that time. And we've always been a seminary that prides ourselves on supporting women in ministry. Um, and, uh, and go from 96% Baptist to 75% Baptist in that time. And so you're seeing, again, sort of a reshuffling of the deck of saying, uh, we access this where we can with who we can, uh, not quite some of that denominational loyalty, which is both encouraging and disorienting all at the same time. Um, so, you know, we named several things, I think there, y'all named them very well, of some of the challenges um, of what calling is, people coming at different stages, the need for bivocational training, other training. Um, so in, in your worlds, how are your groups? How do you see people uh, pivoting well to train this next generation? How, how do we adjust to raise up this new generation? 
So a couple of things. First, uh, and this goes along with what some of my colleagues just shared as a challenge, I think it's imperative that we provide space for discernment. Um, this is happening in our classrooms for sure. We have a class on intro to ministry where they are exploring calling and discerning calling and thinking through that. But churches are also spaces where discernment should be happening. So not if this is not just for youth or for those that are heading to college. Offer discernment classes or retreats for all ages. Not everyone is called to ministry at age 16. For some, the call is at 26 or 36 or even 56. So nurture in all manners of calls by providing opportunities for prayer and mentorship in, uh, in churches or in places of education and, and vocational discernment. So we're doing that uh, certainly here at Baylor in the undergraduate program. I know Truett is doing that through their classes and through spiritual formation, but having the churches partner in those discernment conversations seems very important and taking advantage of um, even certificate programs that are offered like at Truett that will allow for lay people in the church to delve further into some of these ideas. So that's one thing I think we can do more of. Um, a second way I think we're meeting uh, these challenges or need to be is being willing to explore new models of leadership. Um, the church hasn't always looked like it's looked today. And even though change comes slowly in institutions, maybe it's time to start exploring what that might look like. What would it look like to have a husband and wife come and co-pastor so that they can share it, their ministry gifts with the congregation? How, what would it look like to partner with a local rec league uh, to provide coaches and staff rather than starting a new program? Like, So what does it look like to go into the world and to be in the world in ministry rather than asking everybody to come to us? to receive services. So what, what might that look like? Um, but but trying to go beyond our walls um, would be another way I think we can begin to meet some of these challenges. Um, a third one, and I just have to say this, be open to women, be open to hiring women in your congregations um, and to nurturing their gifts. Women are gifted, they're called to serve, and many of them still struggle to find employment to work that will match their gifts for ministry and allow them to live into their full calling. So oh, make space for the women that are being trained. And then finally, name, this was part of my own story, name the gifts for ministry that you see in others. I pursued ministry and ordination in large part because of the affirmation of others along my journey. So if uh, if Buford Harris hadn't come up to me in the choir room when we were hanging up our robes and said, hey, if the deacons wanted to ordain you, would you accept? Um, I'm not sure I'd be ordained uh, because I needed that external affirmation uh, to name the, the calling I had already been pursuing and to affirm the gifts that, um, that I was already trying to put into place as a professor but needed someone else to, to come alongside me and say, hey, we see this in you too. So never underestimate what it is to call out the gifts of those in your churches and to tell them what you see God doing in their life. To follow up on that and what Jim mentioned earlier, Dennis and I taught a class together a few uh, years ago, uh, 16 students in the class and uh, in us, 18 total, where we all told our call story. Um, and there were two things that stuck out to me on, from those two comments you just made. One, 
Dennis and I were the only two with quote unquote traditional call narratives. Grew up Christian household, went to a Christian college, called the ministry, family, others supported us, went to seminary, went straight in. Every 16 in the class had a much different story than that. And all 16 had someone that named their calling for them or recognized gifts before they recognized it themselves. And that just comes up over and over again. So I think so much of this we'll get to in a minute goes back to great healthy churches naming this and recognizing this. But that's that's really well said. Thank you, Mandy. Dennis? Yeah, thanks. Well, and I, I'm just clicking off my list of things Mandy said on this point that uh, I would I would only want to reiterate. You know, I did think a bit about uh, how have we thought about the spirit stirring in the sense of vocation in the past. And the only analogy I can come up with is like the story of the pool of Bethesda, where uh, everyone just sits around and waits for the water to stir. And then they look to see who jumps in first. Um, I do worry a bit that maybe that's how we've operated with the sense of calling at the church. We uh, sit around and wait for the spirit to stir. Uh, and then we're happy when someone jumps in and comes down front and may, or makes a decision, and we're happy to pray for them and send them off. Um, but because that's a fairly passive act that we take as a congregation. Um, and so I would only echo Mandy's point about uh, we need to shift from individual to corporate discernment. Um, and I would actually say, and I, I mean, we're preaching to the choir here because y'all all probably do this. Um, I think most ministers do this as part of their sense of vocation. I think what we need to do is encourage our congregation writ large to say part of our corporate responsibility as a body of believers is to be prayerfully considering who might be the next, uh, the next leaders to emerge out of our congregation. Um, because I think to do that, it means we have to believe enough in the mission of the church that we're willing to call people out. I think, I don't know about our reticence. I think part of our reticence to do this is perhaps we don't want to get in anyone's business because we're a culture of individualists who all are on social media and share every bit of their life with everyone else, but we certainly don't want to get into anyone's life. Um, but I, I have a haunting fear and I hope I'm so wrong. Um, I'm, I'm a son of a pastor and, and pastor as well, so I'm hoping I'm wrong. Um, I, I have a fear some people aren't sure the mission of the church is worth it to call people into. Uh, and so I think part of the background of what we have to do as ministers is to remind the people in our congregations, uh, this matters ultimately. Um, and to have a chance to serve in this, in this uh, capacity, it matters ultimately. And so I think we have to, I mean, I don't want to, you know, say we all do a poor job of this, but I think we can, we can call our church to do more, to think about, pray about, engage in, in discernment like Mandy was talking about. So I, I would heartily echo that, that to, we want to move our church from a passive stance to an active stance, that we don't wait around for the waters to stir. We start praying for the waters to stir, and then we start throwing people in even before the waters stir. I mean, that we're going to we're going to stir the waters ourselves if we have to with God's help, right? Um, the other thing I think I would say, I, so I, I had to mention about certainly with women, I think that's important. And, and so Mandy said that so well, I won't repeat that. But related to the first point, um, I wonder if what we, what one of the ways we can help our congregations think about the renewal of, of, of the mission of the church and why people should serve is, and maybe you already do this, so if you do, um, apologies. Um, 
we need to tell more redemptive stories of the work of the church. I mean, why would you give your life to the church? If it is merely to get up every Sunday and preach a sermon, which I know that's not what we do. You do a million other things between Sunday to Sunday, right? But in the mind's eye, if they see the mission of the church is just a place to get together on Sunday to hold life together, as valuable as that is, um, I think we have a hard sell. Uh, I think if we can talk about the church as a place that's an agent of transformation with God's help in the world, um, there are people who may say, I would really like to be a part of that. I really feel called to lean to lean into that. So again, I guess I would say just telling redemptive stories for those who are wondering whether this is a place to, to land their land their life. Um, I, th I think that that can be, could be compelling uh, for them. Um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll just stop there. I got a couple of things. Maybe I'll, I'll hold at that point. We'll see what maybe Jim has to say for us. Well, I, I, I want to uh, pull a little bit on a thread that um, Mandy, you and Dennis both were teasing out. Um, and that is in, in the role of the congregation, how we begin to lift up leaders. I want to I want to pull that to the point of talking about. I think it's important for us to work with our congregations to help them understand, appropriate the biblical truth that all Christians are given gifts for ministry at their baptism, and that baptism is the basic right of ministry. Um, by using spiritual gift inventories to be talking about fruits of the spirit, to, to lift up those passages, especially in the epistles that talk about how leaders emerge in the life of the early church. Um, I think in a congregation where everybody has that sense of, I might have gifts for ministry. Most of us will use them here in this local context, but that, that is a way of throwing a few rocks in the pool of Siloam, maybe Dennis, uh, to begin to stir up that water a little bit in the congregation as, as a whole. And out of that, then a few people begin to sense that maybe their particular gifts or the passion they have around that gifts would lead them to want to examine the possibility of ordained ministry uh, later in their lives. Um, I also speak from the, the, the context of a connectional polity where the process for ordination can be really rule driven and pretty onerous. Um, there's a lot of here are the hoops you have to jump through in order to be eligible for ordination. Um, and I'm, I'm gonna throw into the chat here in a little bit an article I wrote for our the Presbyterian Outlook, one of our national uh, uh, magazines about how we need to trust the spirit more, let go of all the rules and say, what do we need to do with this person who's sitting here, standing here before us to help him or her best prepare themselves for ministry? Um, and that, and so I just, we used to have a book of order that had a lot of rules and regulations in it about the ordination process. Uh, several years ago, we adopted a new, new version that just said, uh, you ought to do something to help people decide if they're called to ministry. And that's about all they did, which scared every committee on preparation for ministry to death. So what they all did was they went back to their former manual of operations and made it even stronger so they could lean on it now that the Book of Order didn't give them that ability. 
I think that's absolutely the wrong move. I think it is to say each person is unique. Each person's call is unique. And therefore each person's process toward call is unique. And we need to nurture that unique approach. And maybe I'll stop there. I'll have, might have more to say about that later. That's great, thanks. I, I wanna address um, um, Kathy's, Kathy, yeah, Kathy's question. I do think part of this is uh, perhaps when people are discerning a call to offer differing visions of what church is and can be. Um, she mentioned fresh expressions of faith, um, which is a, a phrase taken from, I, I think, the um, um, Church of England. I think their ordination vows to be continually exp I'm going to misquote this because this is way out of my range, but um, continually seeking fresh expressions of the faith in every generation. And from that, this group, Fresh Expressions, has grown, grown up. Um, but, uh, you know, and I think at Truett, and I know many other seminaries, you're trying to create degree programs around social innovation and, and entrepreneurism and trying to, for those that aren't going to fit in our context, First Baptist Church, County Seat Town, or First Presbyterian, or a high steeple, somewhat traditional or we may just say institutional church. Um, there are other expressions of church out there for other personalities, for other gift sets. Now you've got to figure out how to make a living. You know, and there's there's kind of a tent making co uh, co vocational role to that. But I think that is on anybody training for ministry is something uh, to be considering. And we do a lot of that. We have we're blessed and true to have an office of ministry connections that visits with every incoming student. And, and then that student at their mid mid seminary career, and then in their last year, many times over their gifts, their personality, where they want to be geographically even, and really tries to help them find positions that are well suited to who they are and who God is shaping them to be, and not trying to cram you know a bunch of people into square holes that don't fit the square hole, you know. And so um, that's, a, that's a big part of that, that I think in, in many, uh, yeah, elicits excitement that it doesn't have to look like the way I grew up looking. And many are still gonna fit that as well. So that's a great question. Thank you, Kathy. So um, where do you find hope? As our final question together as a panel, where, as you look at the new generation that you're, you're seeing, the, the names and others that come to mind, where do you find hope for the church in this young generation that is being given keys to the kingdom? I have so much hope. Um, working with undergraduate students is an exercise in accepting that gift of hope. Um, it is it's such a treasure to see their excitement and to feed off of their passion for living for Christ in the world. Um, so this generation's creativity is is kind of unmatched in a lot of ways their desire to serve their commitment to love and and perhaps one of the things that makes me most excited is their willingness to consider new and different perspectives these are just a few of the things that inspire me i think that as the church and as those leading it it is critical that we encourage this generation's curiosity and appreciate their lack of certainty. This is not a hindrance to them, but rather is a great gift for leading in this administering in a 21st century world. 
these are individuals who don't want easy answers. And if you try to offer them easy answers, then they're going to shut down and walk away um, often. And so they know that life is messy and complicated and any faith that doesn't acknowledge that feels shallow to them. So as pastors and churches seeking to train these men and women, we need to give them meaningful work to do that will allow them to put that faith into action, to work out their faith on the ground. Because how many of us experience the important truths of our faith through the practice of living out Jesus's great commandment to love our neighbors? And my students are, are the same. They want to be out there making a difference. So starting together in that shared desire to demonstrate God's love in the world seems to offer us a, a bright spot of hope that we can um, build towards the future as we're partnering together. Yeah, I would, I would echo Mandy's uh, comments as well. I feel a great amount of hope uh, with the students that we engage with. I think I'll just offer one comment. Um, that most of the students I know, and particularly the alums, uh, that you know, we have, I don't know, 1,500 or so Truett alums, and I get to hear from them, uh, some more than others, but most of them fairly regularly. Um, and most of them that I know, what they really long to do is to plant roots, uh, to settle into ministry, and to uh, live life with people across uh, seasons of life. Um, which is, it's a far cry from the model I was given when I came to seminary. Uh, the idea in seminary was you were supposed to build as many networks as possible and foster as many relationships as you could to ensure mobility. And I assume that was always upward mobility that they were referencing. Um, but if our graduates, and I'm, I'm sure ours are not alone, uh, sense a call to place and to people over upward mobility, then I think it means we have to consider how do we model and foster and ensure longevity and ministry in the same place. Uh, because in many ways, at least in my mind, that requires a totally different set of tools. Um, it's a different type of holy imagination that one has to acquire in guiding God's people and discerning one's role across a long season of time. And so I think one of the questions uh, we ask, we can ask is how do we help foster that holy imagination? Um, and in this kind of model, uh, I mean, I've called I've called graduates and said, hey, if you thought about applying to be pastor of this church, you know, it's a little larger than where you are. And they're like, I'm not interested. I love where I am. I love the people that I serve with. Um, and so for them, upward mobility is not on the table for most of them. Um, and so I think we again think about how do we help them in that space and in that sense of vocational calling, because in that model, the networks that they're creating really aren't about upward mobility. It's about a shared space for kind of that deep longing friendship that I think most ministers really want to have. And so, uh, so the hope for me is one, we have, we have graduates and young ministers who, who aren't looking to jump every year or two or three years to the next place. They're really looking um, to invest their lives with people. And I think they're looking for deep friendships um, with other ministers. Um, and so I guess I would just say the, the challenge that hope for me as a seminary professor and all of us as ministers, I think, is how do we nurture and sustain and celebrate place and a sense of call to ministry uh, to place over, over a lifetime or at least a, a lengthy tenure? <clears throat> I might add that what, what gives me hope is um, about the people who are thinking about ministry 
is that they really have gotten it where this is not going to be a, a path towards success. This is going to be an opportunity to serve. And um, that they're really interested in making it, as most millennials are, really interested in making a difference in the communities where they live. And I think that's such a richer, maybe, uh, kind of baseline for pursuing ministry. Um, the other thing I have institutional hope because seminaries and other and denominations are trying things. Um, I threw up uh, a couple of, of, of groups, um, cyclical.org um, is a, a group that's focusing on looking for missional leaders, sort of starting with people in the communities where they live and serve already and inviting them into conversation around good food, good food and good drink about what it means to minister and what might that look like as a life commitment. Um, they work with San Fernando Presbytery and they have in the last three years started 40 new worshiping communities out of that sort of leader focused model. Um, 1001 new worshiping communities is an initiative of the Presbyterian Church USA, which again is trying to look for people who have a passion for weird kinds of ministries. I want to have a laundromat ministry in a homeless community yep. and encouraging them and giving them tools and giving them financial support to go out and try some of those innovative ministries, not all of which succeed, but all of which provide a lesson for the institutional church about how to do this a little better. That gives me hope. That's great. Thanks, Jim. I, I think, yeah, in all of this, fostering deeper connections between denominations, seminaries, and the local churches. You, you mentioned cyclical as an organization, but that's what comes to mind of um, pastoring is hard. <laughs> it's so hard. I remember when Preston Clegg was a baby-faced pastor. Now look at him. He's like haggard and brooding, you know? Um, I say that because we're friends, <laughs> but it's hard. But so much of the press, even in our churches, is how difficult ministry is. And, and I know there's a lot, but it's also, there's no, for those of us who are in it, I mean, there's no joy like it either. And there's so much beauty and wonder to give your life to this, to tell those stories as pastors and ministers and to let them, others kind of inside the curtain on the deep joy of it. Um, and then to deepen those relationships that, that become cyclical. We rarely receive a student anymore at Truett. I mean, I say rarely, but it's the vast majority of our students come because an alumni was their pastor or youth minister or professor and encouraged them to come. And we, our students rarely go into churches that we don't already have solid relationships with. And it, and so, and so it goes. And that's for a, you know, a medium sized, fairly young place. But Mandy, Dennis, Jim, thank you for your, your willingness to be here today and for your contributions. Uh, thank you for the hope um, you share with us. And I, I share that um, and, and, and not just our generation, but, but the, the ministry of the church for all of the, the difficulty. There's also great work being done that, that's hugely encouraging. Um, thank you all for being here. I'll turn it over back to the other Matt. Thanks, Matt. Uh, so next week, we're going we're gonna to move from the question of how the church nurtures the sense of call, uh, stirs the waters, to use uh, the biblical metaphor that Dennis pointed us to, to actually, how does the how does the church um, 
And how do ministers, how do we match make? How do we, how do we help churches find ministers and ministers find churches? We're talking about hiring in the, in the most basic term. Um, in the 20th century, there was a re- relatively kind of predictable and traditional way that we went about that. Like everything else in the 21st century, that's changing. Um, I'm, I will be one of our three panelists next week. Jack Bodenhammer, who actually works in reference to referral at Tritt Seminary, will be another one of our panelists. And then Sue Westfall, who is the transitional presbyter in Birmingham, Alabama. So we're all three of us approaching it from very different contexts. We're delighted to have you come and overhear our conversation next week about creative ways to be thinking about that. Thanks again to our panelists. Thanks for being with us today. Hope to see you next week.